0: To retrofitted. I am Rebecca Godlove, and it has been way too long. A warning about this episode I do discuss human sexuality and human reproduction. It is not graphic, but you may want to keep that in mind if you are listening with younger children or older children who have not had the talk yet. I'm taking a break from deconstruction this week. Uh, but don't think that means we are not still digging into some pretty heavy stuff we are going to talk about children we are going to talk about raising children so it is not a light and fluffy topic but it's also not early church history there has been a movement blooming mostly a parenting and caregiving movement that is a massive shift from the way that my generation was generally raised if i were to encapsulate this movement Uh, this way of thinking this way of being into one word I would say consent now that is not something that I ever imagined I would be discussing with my very young children but it is very empowering for them and teaching them about saying no is important now you and I both know that children are very good at saying no But I think you're smart enough to realize that I'm not talking about saying no to vegetables. I'm not talking about saying no to sharing. I am talking about saying no where their bodies are concerned. When I grew up, it was expected that you hugged your relatives when you saw them. Uh, It didn't matter if you saw them every Sunday after church or once a year at the family reunion. You were shamed if you didn't, maybe even scolded in front of them the guilt that was laid on you was thicker than the smell of your auntie Penelope's gardenia perfume. Because family's family, right? It's blood's thicker than water. And even God places emphasis on the value of family and the importance of the family unit. But do you know why so many of us were reluctant to hug the relatives we only saw a few times a year? We didn't want to because we didn't know them. Family, okay, sure, but they were still strangers to us. We didn't know how we were related to this old guy who smelled like tobacco or these pimply-faced cousins of ours. Were they cousins? Were they third cousins? Didn't know. Didn't matter. Didn't know them. Teaching us about how we were actually related to these people, it it didn't really make a difference. They were still strangers to us. We didn't want them to touch us, and we didn't want to touch them. And we should not have had to. Now, for the most part, I would say I was fairly fortunate. Uh, We didn't have a lot of reunions when I was a kid. My Mother's side of the family is very small. And my father's side of the family is, is very, uh, for the most part, confined to a very specific area of Pennsylvania. So I, I kind of knew who they were. I'd seen them pretty regularly. Now, I did have a problem hugging my maternal grandfather. It, it was nothing that he did inappropriately to me, which I know is more than can be said for a lot of grandparents and, and grandchildren. Um, but he wore a cologne we later realized that had irritated my asthma. So even as a young child, when we didn't know that I had asthma, I didn't like to hug him because apparently like my throat would close up. Okay, So I think that's a very valid reason for not wanting to hug another human being. Think for a second of how many parents have unintentionally in the past urged their children into the arms of people who would later abuse them for nothing more than the purpose of the appearance of politeness. Think now how many parents still do that. So that is something that my husband and I do differently with our kids. Both our boys are pretty affectionate. Um, They're five and eight years old, but we don't tell them specifically that they have to hug or kiss anyone. We ask if they want to, or we will suggest, you know, go say goodbye to so-and-so, and they can determine how they want to do that. If they want to offer a hug, they can. If they want to wave or high five or blow kisses or, you know, just be silly, that's fine too. And some days, even the people they love to hug, they just don't feel like hugging. And that's okay. Refusing to hug a relative or friend is not proof that the child doesn't love them. It is also not proof that the child is being raised poorly. Kids have so little that they're really in control of as it is. So let's let them have their way here. If a grown-up's experience at a reunion or holiday event is going to be ruined because a child won't hug them, then they have way more issues than how you're parenting that child. And they should probably be dealing with them separately. Kids need to learn that their bodies don't belong to their parents or anyone else, and that's that's sometimes hard for parents to handle. Their bodies are their own, and that does include how to take care of their bodies, but it also means they can learn to say no when something feels wrong, or they just don't like it. Okay, I'm not saying that kids get to decide every aspect about their daily lives. Come on, if left to themselves, most tweens that I know are gonna order pizza and eat ice cream for every meal, and they're gonna binge watch something on Netflix. Preschoolers are going to come up with an agenda of cartoons, candy, and playtime, and they won't clean anything up ever. But their bodies, they need to be in charge there. There are reasonable exceptions. They don't get to say no to basic body care, like brushing teeth or showering, but they do get to decide about being touched and how they're touched, and things like what to wear. Do you want to wear your tennis shoes or your boots today? What pajamas do you want to take to your sleepover? And yes, when we tuck our kids in, we do ask if they can give us a hug or they want to hug us, or if we can hug them and kiss them. Of course, the answer is almost always a giggly, snuggly yes, but there are nights that they aren't interested. And we say we love them regardless of how they want to say goodnight, and that's it. But what about things like wrestling and tickling? Kids do that all the time with each other, and often the parents and caregivers do too. So when it comes to that, we ask first. If the kid allows it, we stop the moment they show discomfort or say no or stop. It's over. It's done. We don't push. We don't shame. It's over. It's done. We also are teaching our children to do this with each other. The number one phrase heard in my house would probably be, do not touch your brother. His body is not yours. And they need to get that into their heads. My kids know the correct words for their body parts. We do not use cute words or euphemisms for the parts that make boys and girls different from each other. Now, that's not to say they know all about the birds and the bees at this time. So please do not try to have a conversation with my eight-year-old about where babies come from. Okay, some kids at their age have had to talk. That's fine. You know what your kid can handle and understand. But you've got to do something. Now, my older son is very much like I was at his age, which means he is incredibly curious, incredibly inquis- inquisitive, has zero uh, street smarts and like 9,000% book smarts. So he loves to learn. He's obsessed with learning. And he has had questions, Um, especially because we have felt fairly early in our um relationship with our kids. We did let them know about our miscarriages. We didn't go into graphic detail, but we did tell them that there they have brothers and sisters. Well, we think that it was two brothers and a sister, but they have siblings in heaven who are living with Jesus and who they will get to meet someday. So they understand that babies grow inside a mommy's body, and sometimes the baby stops growing. They understand that a baby comes out of the body with the help, usually, of a doctor uh, or nurses, They understand that a daddy and a mommy have different special cells in their bodies that come together to make a baby. Um, They understand that kids don't have babies or kids shouldn't have babies. They understand that grownups have babies. And that's not to put any slam on like teen pregnancy or anything. What I'm saying is that, you know, eight-year-olds shouldn't have to think about having babies. And that's what I'm trying to say. So please forgive me if that didn't come out the right way. Because this groundwork has been laid, I don't believe that it's going to be very shocking or weird for me to tell my son, for my husband and I to tell my son rather um, exactly how the act of sex works. The groundwork's there. so this is sort of just the the next step. Because we've been laying this, it's also not a weird thing to talk about with him. like he doesn't get weirded out when we discuss this and you know what? we don't get weirded out either. It's only weird if you make it weird. Now here's the thing. my mom never. Talk to me about sex. Our discussion about menstruation consisted of her asking me if I knew what pads were for, me giving her the incorrect answer, and then I was told that girls got periods so they could have babies someday and that they hurt and they would happen for the rest of my life. In fact, the day I got my first period, I was 11 years old, and it was actually the same day that I had my annual checkup with a pediatrician. Both my mom and my doctor missed it, despite the fact that my underwear had been stained with blood. I didn't know that the bleeding would stop after a few days. I didn't know that the cycle was based on the release of the egg and hormonal changes inside a girl or woman's body. I didn't know how a sperm and an egg came together to make a baby. I had a weird fixation with pregnancy from a young age, but I didn't understand anything about it. Please, I am begging you, do not let your kid suffer in silence. They may not ask the questions out loud, but they have the questions. I guarantee it. Now, my friends didn't know much either, as we were kind of all like the sheltered geek group. <laughs> so it wasn't like I had these hypersexualized friends who were dropping these tips and tricks and, you know, Cosmo hints into my ear. I did read the magazines, yes, because I was interested, I was intrigued, I was fascinated, but I didn't understand what any of the words or slang meant. Everything I read about was probably normal for most sexually active couples at the time, but to me it seemed horrible and offensive and dirty. I knew that I wanted to wait until marriage to have sex. That was something that I had believed from a young age, even before I became a Christian. Um, But after reading all this stuff, I had pretty much decided that I wasn't going to have sex after marriage either. It looked uncomfortable and weird, unpleasant, and very intrusive. The older kids at school used to tease me with uh, really dirty sexual innuendos, but it wasn't because they were trying to flirt with me uh, or because they had crushes on me. It was because they knew I despised them and was really bothered by innuendos, and they loved to see me squirm. I mean, even today, my least favorite film genre is raunchy teen comedy. I hate it. I actually hate it more than I hate gore, which is really high on my list of no thank yous. How can you let a young woman enter adulthood with no discussion of sex? of protection, of STDs, of the emotional roller coaster that a sexual or even non-sexual relationship can be. No discussion of virginity, no discussion of the conscious decision to remain celebrate and how that's different from virginity, no discussion of fertility or the menstrual cycle or pregnancy or childbirth or breastfeeding or anything that remotely falls into any of those camps. I've said it before on this podcast, I love my mom and I know she did the best she could, but this is one area that I... I feel like I can't excuse her. I know she'd been abused herself and probably got less of a talk than I did. But because of that, I feel this was a big failing on her part. And I do maintain it really did cause me a lot of problems as a young adult and later as a young wife. Please find the resources you need based on your personal values and your child's emotional readiness. You can find them online. You can find them at the library. You can find them at a pediatrician's office or through a therapist. Again, it's only weird if you make it weird. Do not make it weird. In my house, we talk about consent regularly. Sometimes we make it lighthearted and other times it's more intense. We also talk a lot about not keeping secrets. Or rather, we talk about the difference between fun secrets, like what we bought daddy for Christmas, and not okay, bad secrets, like secrets adults might ask you to keep about touching or saying things they shouldn't. Our kids know that grown-ups are not allowed to tell them to keep secrets, and they are not to keep secrets if grown-ups ask them to. We also talk about safe grown-ups and unsafe grown-ups, and this is sort of my personal twist on Stranger Danger. Um, Both my kids are pretty outgoing, fairly affectionate, like I said, and I don't want them to be afraid of people. Even as an introvert, like, I try not to be afraid of people. Um, There are a lot of wonderful people out there, but My kids need to understand the difference between safe and unsafe grown-ups. Now, unsafe grown-ups, it doesn't mean they're a bad person at all. It just means that we don't know them well enough for mommy and daddy to feel comfortable with them hanging out with the kids alone. Our mailman, for example, lovely young man, probably a great guy, probably a lot of fun, but he's not a safe grown-up because we don't know him well enough. We teach our kid that safe grown-ups are people that mommy and daddy personally trust that will take care of them when we are not around. Every so often, at least once a month, I will randomly quiz my kids on safe grown-ups. Who is the safe grown-ups in our neighborhood? Who is a safe grown-up in your school in your church? Who is not a safe grown-up? It's really important so that I know they know where they can go for help if they need it. Now, consent goes both ways too. I talk a lot about the kids being able to say no, but here's the deal. Mommy deals with anxiety, depression, and ADHD, and one of the ways that these manifest in my body is that touch can overstimulate me. Um, I'm gonna put a, a real quick caveat in here. I am uh, on medication that works. I love it. I'm proud of it. I have zero shame whatsoever in taking a medication that helps my mental health. If you have any questions on this, or you wonder my further thoughts on it, I have done. Uh, I did a series of four episodes um, on mental health in the church in previous seasons. So please um, listen to those, and you will hear how passionate I am. Uh, But anyway, um, the medication does help a great bit. However, I can still be overstimulated and sometimes I don't want my kids to touch me. (laughs) Um, That is actually something that uh, I think many parents feel, especially moms or dads, if you're home all day with the kids and they're young kids, that actually probably has very little to do with any mental health issues. That's probably just you're tired of being touched. So my older son, especially, he's a big hugger, and he usually will wait for me to invite him into a hug, or he will ask if he can hug me. And I know that there are probably um, people who think this seems very cold, Um, and that's fine. You do what works for your family. What works for ours is that, number one, it keeps my kid from feeling rejected because he knows I'm not rejecting him. I'm rejecting physical touch, and it's temporary. It has nothing to do with him. I also go further to explain why I don't want to be hugged. Maybe I'm feeling angry at the moment or I'm frustrated or I'm in the middle of something that you know could be dangerous. A lot of times um, my kids want to come hug me when I'm cooking and there's like splattering grease on the stove. So that's a safety issue more than just, you know, a consent issue. But it's it still involves both. Consent goes beyond physical touch, I'm sure you understand that. Consent is also for borrowing things and using things that belong to other people. There are steep prices to pay when kids take something without permission, or take something with permission and don't take care of it. The general life rule that we're trying to teach them is ask first, about everything. The best rules I can teach my kids are to ask first, to learn to wait, to use kind words, and to be flexible. Literally, I think that if you can't get these things into your head, life will be so much easier for you. I, on the other hand, am still learning these rules. And while we're on the topic of kids and consent, we also do not force our children to eat. I understand that what I'm about to share, a lot of um, folks will probably disagree with. A lot of people will say that I'm um, being too soft on my kids, which first of all, I'm I don't consider myself soft on my kids. I consider myself a pretty um, tough mom, to be honest with you. Um, But with my younger kid, especially, um, he is at five, the without exaggeration, the pickiest eater I've ever met. And that includes my grandfather, who basically only ate burnt toast and bacon and spam. It was a World War II thing. Loved spam. Now, my son does not have food aversions. We know that a lot of our friends who have children on the um, autism spectrum have food aversions, and I can understand and respect that. Um, But we've been through therapy with him, and it's not a texture thing. It's not a flavor thing. It's a stubborn thing. He will only try new foods on his own terms, which is pretty much like maybe once a year if I'm lucky. We still don't force him. Of course, I want him to eat more food, (laughs) anything, fruits, vegetables, like a different shape of macaroni and cheese. But I will not force him to eat because I grew up in the clean your plate generation. There are children starving in China. Um, And so I've had weight problems and an unhealthy relationship with food for my entire life. It is also something I talk a lot about on this podcast. And I will not pass that relationship on to my kids. I won't. We teach them that all food is fuel. But some foods have more of the things our bodies need to stay healthy. We don't talk about good foods and bad foods. We don't talk about sugar being bad. Um, we do talk about certain foods being anytime foods. Thank you, Elmo and Sesame Street. Um, anytime foods are foods that are pretty much universally accepted as healthy. Uh, Fruit, um, you know, string cheese, uh, whole wheat crackers, things like those are anytime foods. Certain things like cupcakes or fast food are sometimes foods. They're not bad foods. They're sometimes foods. And when we say that, it's easier for us to enjoy them. And it's a lot less likely for us to pass along to our kids this dichotomy of good food, evil food, bad food. If I eat this bad food, I'm a bad person. If I eat good food, I'm a good, good person. And that sounds very simplistic, but that's how kids think. That's how I thought. And that's how I'm actually still unlearning that process. I'm, I'm learning to listen to my body and eat a bigger variety of foods and not condemn myself when I eat food that was previously, in my previous life, bad food. That was a lot and I'm probably sure I'll do episodes on intuitive eating in the future and failed diets and things like that. But at any rate, I don't force my kids to eat. I want, I want them to. I desperately want them to. But unfortunately, when it comes down to things like um, you know, bargaining with your kids, uh, you can have this cookie if you try your broccoli, or punishing them, you cannot leave the table until you eat all your food, or um, if you don't eat your food, you don't get anything, and you have to go to bed hungry, um, or I know you hate this food, and it makes you sick, but you have to eat it anyway, and that one, my mom did. I know that there's food that my kids don't like. I will still make them eat it if it doesn't make them physically ill. Um, because I once threw up a mouthful of spaghetti. My mom was generally a good cook, but she could not make spaghetti sauce to save her Polish soul. Uh, it was terrible. It was really, really thick and it was basically uh, tomato paste with some parsley and it was thrown over, you know, spaghetti noodles. It, It tasted terrible and it actually made me throw up. I took a bite of it and I threw up, but, um, you know i was punished for that and i was basically made to go to bed hungry um i'm never going to force my child to eat something that makes them gag or throw up that's to me that's terrible parenting i'm sorry i usually try to be very very open-minded with with other parenting um you know, techniques and choices but to force your child to eat a food that physically makes them ill is not cool and i'm not going to do that in the meantime i'm going to continue to talk to my children about how Uh, Certain foods will give their cells the ability to grow healthier and stronger, and I will wait, and a big part of parenting is waiting. Uh, However, (laughs) I did realize that I maybe went a little bit too far in talking about how food is used by the body when my older son told my younger son the other day that if he did not eat new foods, he was going to die young. Uh, We had a little talk about that, about um, hyperbole and exaggeration and not threatening your little brother um, because he's not eating his carrots. There's a lot more that I have to say about kids making choices about their own bodies, but I am going to stop here. Next time, I'm going to get back into deconstruction. Probably, maybe not. I don't know yet. It is going to be a surprise to all of us. In the meantime, you can reach me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com or download and listen to all three seasons of Retrofitted on Anchor.fm, Audible, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Now, this podcast was never meant to be one-sided, me talking at you, so you're invited to share your thoughts about this or any episode on my Facebook or Instagram pages. Just search at Retrofitted Podcast. I will be back with another episode soon. Until then, be wise and be well. Theme song is Late Night by Ryan Anderson.